This morning, uh, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. So please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word today. We'll be in verses 15 through 21. Verses 15 through 21. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we've been talking last week and we'll continue speaking this week about the holiness of God and this mandate that since God is holy, we ought also to be holy in all that we do. So last week we talked about uh, four different examples of holiness in the Old Testament. That holy, holiness is a theme that carries throughout the scriptures and is heavily emphasized in the Old Testament. We talked about the burning bush and Moses. We talked about Mount Sinai. We talked about the temple and the tabernacle. We talked about the vision of the threefold holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And then we went to the holiness of Christ because the holiness of God in the Old Testament is a very exalted holiness that ends up pushing God far away from us. But then in the incarnation of Christ, the holiness of God is brought very near and very close to us. And we talked about the holiness of Jesus, the zeal of the holiness of Jesus in going into the temple and driving out those that had turned the temple into a place of business, a, a flea market, in order to return it to its holy uh, state, which should be a place that is set apart from this world for the worship of the Lord God. And we ended with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, which is where we will begin today and then return to 1 Peter. So I'm going to read for us 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, which emphasizes to us the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the presence of the Lord that was manifest or made known, his dwelling place amongst people on this earth was in the temple. But the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, is that God's dwelling place amongst humanity is no longer in a set place in Jerusalem, but is in the hearts of those who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And this is a radically important thing to understand, and it has very much to do with holiness. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 7, 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said... 
I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be, a son, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So these things all wrap together. If you are a Christian this morning, which means you have repented of your sins, you have believed in the things that we've been singing about this morning, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that his death upon the cross has paid the penalty for our sins. When you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God comes alongside you and within you to strengthen you to walk in this holy way that God would have you to walk in. And those of us that have come to Christ realize that we came to Christ when we came to the end of ourselves and realized that we could not possibly live the Christian life apart from the work of the Lord. And so we come on our knees and ask God to forgive our sins and then he sends his spirit to us to strengthen us to make it possible that we might make progress in holiness. And so we see this dramatically uh, made known for the first time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 during the day of Pentecost, when there is this dramatic shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the Lord pours out his Holy Spirit in a way that he had not in the Old Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about for weeks in the past, is the third person of the Trinity, uh, eternally existing, so the Holy Spirit is not new, but there is something different about the post-resurrection way and that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and the people of God. And it's something particular for the age that we live in. The old work of the temple has now been transformed to the hearts of those who believe in Jesus as Lord. So as we saw in the Old Testament, the, the glory of Christ poured out on the temple that sometimes there was fire over it, sometimes a cloud enshrouding it. There was always something about the temple when the people were walking with the Lord and honoring him that, that manifested the glory of God. It was a place where they went to see something of the glory of God, a place of worship. Now there is something, or supposed to be, something about our lives as Christians that make known to the lost world something of the glory of Christ. That there's something about the, the honor, something about the goodness and the love and the hope of Christ Jesus that is made known in us by the way that we live in the world. There's a lot of different ways that this is portrayed in the New Testament. Sometimes it's talked about us going out into the world as light into darkness. Well, all of us know that we have nothing about ourselves that lights up this world. The thing about us that carries light into the world is us saying something to the world about the hope of Christ Jesus, of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is this that carries something of Christ Jesus into the world. It is a call to holiness. And remember, holiness is a separation from sin, but not simply for the separation of sin, but it is separation unto righteousness, unto worship, unto the glory of God. So the temple was set apart, not just so that it's not a marketplace and it's not a place of business, but it's set apart unto 
worship. It's set apart unto a place that gives glory to God. And so our lives as Christians are supposed to be lived as those that give glory to God. Our life is supposed to be a life that is set apart for the worship of Christ Jesus. And that our days are not just spent uh, accumulating things and entertaining ourselves, but our lives are poured out and spent in Christ Jesus to bring, to bring glory to God. And so this is something of the holiness of God's spirit that comes to us and sets apart our life unto a different purpose that it was never set apart from before God's spirit came to inhabit our soul. So the presence, God's presence in the world is now made known through us by his Holy Spirit. There is no more temple. We are the temple of God's spirit. And when we go out into the world, we are bringing something of the holiness of God to this lost and dying world. If your life is shot through with sin and lust and anger and greed and selfishness and materialism, I'll tell you that little of the glory of God will be made known to this world. And so this is why the call of holiness is so important, that we are putting to death sin and putting off the things of this world so that we might put on the things of Christ Jesus, the things of this new life, so that this new life might shine through to the world. We look at this in the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament. The glory of Christ or the glory of God in the temple is so bright when the people have a passion for the Lord and they're seeking after him. But when their hearts are divided by adultery and materialism and, and the seeking of, of after uh, all kinds of things in the world, they wander. And the people of Israel are always wandering away and coming back and wandering away and coming back. And the glory of the Lord comes back into the temple when their hearts are turned towards the Lord. And so it's the same with us in this call to holiness, in this call of separation from the things of the world. The question that's before us in Peter's uh, uh, not declaration, his uh, call for us to be holy as I am holy is for us to look at ourselves and ask, have we drifted to where our life looks and sounds basically like the world around us? If our life looks and sounds basically like the world around us, we are not walking in holiness. We are not calling, uh, we're not fulfilling this command to be separated from the world. We are certainly not filled by God's spirit. But if we are filled by God's spirit, we will not basically look like this world. Is it a time in your life to clear out aspects of your life? When we look back at this example of Jesus clearing out the temple, I can't help but bring parallel to that in our lives today. When Jesus went into the temple and it was all polluted by the things of this world and he went in with great passion and zeal and flipped over the tables and was trying to make again the temple to be a place of worship, a holy place set apart for the work of the Lord. When we look at our own hearts, if our own hearts are now supposed to be the temple of the Lord, I think it's right for there to be introspection and self-examination periodically to say, what is going on in my heart if my heart is the temple of the Holy Spirit now? Because I am sure that there were people in that temple at that time changing money, thinking that they were doing the Lord's work. And then Jesus comes in and starts flipping the tables over and they're like, what is 
I, I've, clearly I've missed something here. If this man is the Messiah and he is enraged over this situation, then somehow we are way, way off course. And I know that in my life, there have been times where I've had to come to grips with things that I had lost sight of that needed to be purged from my life. And there's a powerful example of this in the pursuit of holiness. And we look at, uh, this is from Acts chapter 19, a very interesting example of what it means to confess and purge of your life to get sin out, to draw closer to the Lord God. In Acts chapter 19, there's a, a series of verses about Paul's powerful ministry in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit is very much upon Paul and all kinds of amazing things are happening and after this casting out of a series of, of evil spirits, a fear falls on the people. And always when we are walking in holiness before the Lord, there will be a fear of God upon us, which is exactly where we're going in 1 Peter. But this happens in the ministry of Paul, Acts chapter 19, verse 17, a fear falls upon the people. But what happens in verses 18 through 20 is exactly what I'm getting at this morning. It says this, also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about is people coming under conviction. The more they get close to the Lord and God's spirit comes very near to them, they end up becoming very convicted of the way that they're living their life. And they realize that there's a problem. There's a disconnect between the way the Lord would have them to live and the way that they are living. And what happens with these people is exactly what should happen with each and every one of us. That when we come under conviction of our sin because of the fear of the Lord, there is conviction confession, there is divulging, and there is purging. And so they come and they confess that they themselves have been involved with these evil things that Paul is casting out and saying the Lord, those of the Lord should have nothing to do with these things. And they're, you know, they're looking around at each other thinking, well, we have a lot to do with these things. I've got all kinds of this stuff in my own house, but I don't want to get rid of it because it is valuable. But their conviction before the Lord is so great that they begin to divulge it, which means you tell someone else about it. And there is a very distinct pattern of this in the New Testament, that we ought to confess our sins one to another, meaning that when you have something terrible going on in your life, it's not good to keep it to yourself. You should confess it to the Lord in the right way, confess it to somebody else, and then purge it from your life. So they don't sell these books, they bring them together and they burn all this stuff to remove it from their life so that they are making a dramatic step toward holiness, a step away from the things of this world and a step toward the things of God so that they might be known as Christians, as followers of Christ Jesus. Anytime that we are going to separate ourselves from the world, it will involve this type of action. Throwing things out, deleting things off of a computer or a phone, breaking off inappropriate relationships, breaking off habits that have taken root in your life that you know are not godly habits. They're things that are causing you to stumble in your holiness. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about casting off every sin that so easily entangles so that we can run a race. 
And it's the word picture of like having something wrapped around your legs while you're trying to run a race and you're just, you're bound to stumble. And so cast it off, get rid of it. Do all that is necessary to maintain a pure heart. This has to do with being a doer of God's word. It's one thing to come here to church this morning and hear about holiness and hear about the righteousness of God and the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit and these good and beautiful things and say, yes, I want more of that. But then walk out of here and say, but really what I want is to hang on to the sin that I have and I'm unwilling to let go of that. And so there's going to always be a challenge as to whether we are going to listen only or listen and then by the power of God's Spirit, do. And the doing will always relate to purging something out of our lives. This is a quote from J.C. Ryle. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end to be a useless Christianity without a crown. And that's a powerful statement. Those of us that are unwilling to give up anything of the world will find that your faith is an empty faith, a false faith. Because the, the self-denying uh, cross of Christ Jesus is what we are called to. We are called to give up this world, to confess our sins, and to purge these things from our lives so that we walk then in a radically different direction. So going back to where we started, the world sees something of Christ Jesus in our life. Not just that we are a morally good person, but that we are a Christian and that we are filled with God's Spirit. And it's powerful to see that Jesus took this so much more seriously than we do. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, and this is repeated in other places in the Gospels, when Jesus was talking about holiness to his disciples, it was in radical terms that made them and everyone who reads these things uncomfortable because of the, the extent to which he took it. And I think we ought to talk about this this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9 says this, if your, hand causes, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with uh, two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So what is he talking about here? Well, this is something called hyperbole or an, an, an intentional significant exaggeration of speech because we know that if you, if you have a problem with what you're looking at and you blind yourself, you can still sin in your mind. So the, 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 the purpose of this is not for us to destroy ourselves. It is to make a very clear point that you should go to the furthest extent to purge sin from your life. And it's, it's stated in this way to be shocking, to say, you know, what? What did he just say? And it should cause us to, to, to think that way. All right, is there something in my life that has taken hold of my life that is sinful and is causing me to not be able to have a thriving and growing relationship with Christ Jesus? Something that is endangering my soul of hell. And I need to do anything and everything to get rid of that, to purge it from my life. It's a great example of this was one of my uh, seminary professors. I thought it was just 
It was amazing how the Lord used this man for his uh, passion for the Lord. When he was a younger man, he had developed an internet pornography habit that was crippling to his life. And when he came to Christ, he purged this from his life. But he knew it was a weakness in his life. So even though he was a seminary professor, in his private office where people would come all the time for things, he had no computer because he was concerned that shutting that door might cause him to stumble in that way and that stumbling in the position that he was in would bring shame to the name of Christ. And so he hand wrote all the books that he wrote were handwritten in that, on that desk in that office. And it was for the sake of not bringing anything into his life that would stumble, cause him to stumble, to go to any extent necessary to flee from and purge from his life a sin that he knew so easily entangled him. And this is different for each and every one of you, but every one of you know this morning the sin that so easily entangles you. And if you're going to take holiness seriously, and you're going to take seriously what it means to follow after Christ Jesus, the thing which you know causes your heart to come back to the world and causes people to to stumble when they look at you instead of saying, praise the Lord, what has happened in your life that you have reached the place that you have reached? Tell me something about this Jesus that we ought to go to any extent necessary to purge or burn in the example of Matthew, uh, of Acts, or of this professor to, to, to change the habits of our life in a radical and noticeable way that we might follow after Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us we must strive for holiness, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It doesn't mean perfection because no one can be perfect. But what it means is that these, this fruit of holiness, the changed life, demonstrates the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Every person that is filled with God's Spirit will have a noticeable and continual change of life. Just like we sang this morning, I want to know you and then I want to know you more. And so we keep growing in godliness. And that's, not, that's a growth of knowledge. It's also a growth of character. And it's a growth of action. That the actions of our life continually change. And as you grow in Christ, there will be things that you are convicted of later as a Christian that you weren't convicted of before. And you think, you know what? I need to change that. And every time God's Spirit convicts you of something, we must respond to the conviction of God's Holy Spirit and act in the way that the Lord is leading us. And this is evidence of the work of the sanctifying Holy Spirit in our life. The Lord will never remove the Holy Spirit from the life of a Christian. He will always continue to work out his saving work in your life, but the Lord will discipline those that he loves. And if we go off into sin and we will not repent from it, the Lord will discipline us. Sometimes that means removing his, his power and various other things from our life until he gets our attention once again. I was reading this past week in my devotions a sobering verse that I think describes uh, certain people at times in their life. And it had to do with Samson, who's a, an odd character in the Bible. A lot that could be said about Samson. But one thing that definitely happens in Samson's life is that he reaches this place of great ungodliness and arrogance towards the Lord. 
where he feels like he no longer needs to, uh, to rely on the Lord. And so he gives up this secret of his strength and he's bound and he, these people are coming in on him. And he, it, the, the, the passage says in Judges 16, 20, oh, I'll just shake these cords off like I always do and go at it. And he goes to shake them off and he, he can't. And he's bound because of this, what it says later is this. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And that's a sobering verse. He was going down this line. He thought everything was good to go. And he goes to break off those cords one more time. And God's power is gone. And suddenly he is terrified of what's happening. Because what he had taken for granted is no longer with him. And I believe it's possible for us to go down this line, not to lose the salvation that God has given to us, but for us to wake up in a place of discipline one day and realize that something is radically different. We had taken for granted that the Lord was with us and that what we were doing, but we had gone down a road and we have found ourselves in a place that we did not want to be. And we wake up without the power of the Lord in our life and we need to radically reassess what is happening and confess and purge something out of our life and return to where we first loved the Lord because we have lost that love for him. This is something of the way that the Lord works in the individual life of a person because in the end, the Lord did return his strength to Samson and that's another story for another day. But on a collective level within a church, we are warned over and over in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 that the Lord can and does remove his power and his spirit from churches. When certain churches become so populated with ungodly, unholy, unbelieving people that are simply going through the motions of religion and have no real heartfelt love for Christ Jesus, the picture that's used in Revelation 2 and 3 is the removing of a lampstand, which is interesting because a lampstand, they didn't have any floodlights or lights like this. It was the way they lit the place. And the idea of light being taken out of a church so that a church is left in darkness is the idea of removing the Holy Spirit from a church, that a place is forsaken of the Lord. And I think that every one of us, sadly, have been into some church where we walk into the place and there's like, there's something really wrong with this place. There's no sense of God's spirit at work in the place. And instead, it just seems empty and cold and void. And this is what it means for there to be a group of people gathered together, but no work of God's spirit in the place. And so I pray every week and I pray constantly that God's spirit would never forsake this church, but would continue his work in this place as he continues his work in each and every one of your hearts, that we might be a people known to be indwelled by God's spirit, that we gather together with joy in this place and then go out into the world bearing witness of the salvation of Christ Jesus, that it is an authentic holiness. It's not a legalism, not a keeping of rules for the sake of keeping rules, but an authentic desire to separate from the world so that we might be set apart in Christ Jesus. I could go on and on and on about this, and I, we don't have time. So what I'm going to do is, is encourage you to read some on this. I'm going to give you three different books, and I encourage you to, at some point, read one of these. The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, or The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, or Holiness by J.C. Ryle. They're all three excellent books, all three available uh, in, our, in our church library if you'd like to check one of those out. But read more about this. Anything that is a central theme in Scripture that you feel like you just don't grasp, 
you need to read more about. Because if something is going on there that you haven't put your hand on, you need to study it more. So all three of those books are excellent in helping us to understand God's work of holiness in his church and in our own lives. So be holy in all of your conduct because God is holy. We go on to verse 17 in 1 Peter, which is the same as what we saw in uh, 2 Corinthians, that because of the fear of the Lord, we are driven to holiness. So in verse 17, it says this, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile. So it is the picture of a, a good father, a loving father, but a father that disciplines, a father that is impartial in discipline, and because of the fear of the discipline of a loving father, it drives us toward holiness, or it drives us toward obedience. So God's love is unconditional, and we, but we will all stand before God one day and give an account for the way in which we live our lives. Uh, we will not escape giving an account for our life. We will be forgiven of all of our sins for the sake of Christ Jesus. But I can tell you, I want on that last day to be able to stand before God and give an account of my life that was not wasted, was not frittered away, was not lived in selfishness or lived in anger or materialism. I want by the grace of God to be able to give a good account for the years of the life that I was given on this earth. Or as it says here, in the time of exile. I know that some of these people were truly dispersed, but the ultimate meaning of our time in exile or a place where we don't belong as Christians is our life on this earth. The scriptures tell us that we don't belong on this earth, that we are as pilgrims passing through from a place now to a kingdom where we truly belong, a place where our citizenship fully is, a place where we will be in Christ fully, where we now only know in part. And so we are seeking to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. The idea that our life lived for Christ in this life was one that was lived with a full and a true heart as seeking after Christ Jesus. And so by the fear of God, conducting ourselves in holiness. It goes on in verses 18 and 19 to talk about uh, trusting in Christ as our Savior. Yes, there's a fear of him as a judge, but there is a trust of him as Savior. In verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We must always remember that our salvation has come to us through the greatest possible price paid, which is the life of Christ Jesus himself. The death of Christ upon a cross is something of infinite worth and value. There's no way that you can put a price tag on the death of Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is by this, him substituting himself for you and for me, his condemnation for your freedom, his death for your life, that our salvation has come to us. As it says in Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Transferred us from a domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his son. 
There's a positional change there accomplished by Christ Jesus through his death on the cross. As it says here, as Peter has mentioned before, this is not something that came about by happenstance, something foreknown of God, something caused to be accomplished by God. But it is important that it was not accomplished until Jesus came and fulfilled these things. It was foreknown, it was predestined, it was going to happen, but it had not happened until Christ Jesus went and accomplished it. This is where we see the agony of Christ bowed at the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way that this could possibly be accomplished? And the answer is no, there is no other way. And so not my will, but yours be done. And the Lord Jesus goes and pours out his own blood, which is the, the image of death, of someone dying, their blood being poured out. And it's what we remember constantly in the Lord's Supper, that Christ Jesus' life was poured out that we might live. And so now, in the cross, in the resurrection, and in the ascended glory of Christ, all of which are spoken about in verses uh, 18 through 20, we believe in God. The very last verses uh, of verse 21 says, So that your faith and your hope are in God. There are a great many things that we can put our faith or hope in in this life. There are so many people that put their hope in themselves. There are so many people that put their hope in their job or their, their degree or the government. But those that are Christians, our hope is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our faith and our hope for the future are in these precious things. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascended glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Seeking a kingdom that is yet to come. Seeing ourselves not in the place where we ultimately belong, but longing after Christ Jesus and believing in his name. And so I want to close this this morning with uh, some verses from 2 Peter. This is the, the latter part of the second letter that Peter writes. In Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. These themes are not going anywhere. We're going to keep seeing these themes that we've been talking about come up over and over in the things that Peter writes to us. But this theme of holiness, this theme of trusting in Christ Jesus by faith and hope, this theme of us being as those who are in exile, not belonging in this world, but looking forward to what Christ is yet to do, is brought into such beautiful um, uh, focus in 2 Peter chapter 3. And it ends as we began today with looking at ourselves as what sort of people we ought to be as those that are seeking after holiness. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so Peter focuses us at the end of his second letter on the reality of this world is not all that there is. There will come an end to all of these things. And in light of that, in believing in the resurrection of Christ Jesus and life yet to come, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And that's what I want to leave with you this morning. As we go out from this place that there might be introspection in our life, what type of things do we need to confess, purge, or break off from our life? What ought we to be doing to be a people that are seeking after the holiness and the righteousness of Christ in our lives today and this week? Let's pray together.